0: Are you an early-stage founder revolutionizing the future of retail? Then you're in the right place. My name is Sapna Shah, and I'm an angel investor investing at the pre-seed stage in retail tech, e-commerce, and digitally native brands. I'm also the founder of Retail X Series, an in-real-life event series based in New York to help early-stage founders think through topics like customer acquisition, sales pipelines, branding, financial modeling, fundraising, and more. In this podcast, I interview founders and investors who've spoken at RetailX Series events in the past, and we dig deep into the tactics around key topics that early stage founders want to hear about. Welcome to the RetailX Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the RetailX Series Podcast. I'm your host, Sapna Shah. Today's episode is all about fundraising, how to be prepared, and how to think about fundraising from VCs. Our guest today, Megan Cross-Breden, is a partner at Amplify Her Ventures. Megan will give us her advice, tips, and best practices for fundraising. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks,
1: Sapna. It's great to be here.
0: Great. So let's start with some background. Can you tell us a little bit about you
1: and your background? Sure. So for background, I invest in early stage, high growth businesses as a partner at Amplifier Ventures. Um, I've been working in venture capital for about seven years now, but I really come from the operating side of the startup table. So I started my career um, actually in public relations, helping helping technology brands like Skype and Foursquare enter the mainstream, and then went on to handle marketing for Stylecaster Media Group which she knows Media acquired in 2014. And throughout the emergence of this whole New York City tech boom, I became just increasingly passionate about helping founders grow. And I really saw that investors had this fascinating pattern recognition on how to take advantage of opportunities, problem solve, given their vantage point of having a full portfolio. So I worked to shift to a career in investing in companies while really rolling up my sleeves and being helpful wherever possible to the companies in which I'm investing. And so I've since built the Cornell Alumni Investment Group, Red Bear Angels, and ultimately, after three years of building that, joined Trisha Black as she was launching Amplifier Ventures almost two years ago now. And it's been a very exciting journey since.
0: That sounds great. So can you tell us more about Amplifier Ventures and kind of what your investment-focused sweet spot is, your typical check size, whether you lead or follow on, you know, sort of the, the basics around your investment strategy?
1: Sure. So at Amplifier Ventures, our whole mission is to first and foremost support exceptional women building high-growth businesses. We're very dedicated to propelling more women into the C-suite of these high-growth companies. So in order to support Getting more women into the C suite of these high growth businesses. We typically invest about 100 to 250K at the seed stage, and we reserve plenty of room for follow on investing so that we can continue to support these companies through their various inflection points. And while we invest mostly in commerce technologies and brands, as well as health innovations, we are generally opportunistic to companies beyond our core focus areas. With that, though, I will say that one common denominator between all of the retail companies in which we invest is that they all have this edge in marketing strategy. So whether that means the founder is a particularly clever marketer or the product itself provides the picks and shovels for another company to get a leg up on marketing, we generally look to -to go-to-market strategy as a key focus area in our diligence process. And actually, along those lines, post-investment, my business partner, Trisha, and I are particularly hands-on when it comes to tactical marketing and sales support, given that Both of us have operating
0: backgrounds in the marketing and sales suite. Thank you. That was so helpful to to understand kind of where your focus is. But I want to go back to something that you said about um, seed stage. So I think a lot of people in the retail community, a lot of founders are really confused about the definition of seed versus pre-seed. And so I would love for you to kind of give your take in New York, you know, of what, that means to be uh, focused on seed versus pre-seed? Like, what are those valuations and round sizes? Mm-hmm. How can founders think about where they fit?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question these days. Historically, I would say that pre-seed is the very first check you would take in. That's generally less than $1 million and it's coming from individuals. And then seed is perhaps the first tranche of capital that puts an institutional fund on your cap table, meaning it's the first time you receive... Um, An infusion of capital from a fund with $25 plus under management. However, these days, I often look at those terms, pre-seed and seed, as nomenclature. Seeing a ton of convertible notes and other types of instruments that offer founders the flexibility to take in more capital on an intermittent basis, if not a rolling basis. And I'm definitely not necessarily recommending that, um, but I'm just pointing out that it it does change the expectations around the average amount people raise and at what valuation. But to answer your question specifically, I would say a general rule of thumb is pre-seed is um, that first tranche of investment that's sub $1 that will help you demonstrate product market fit. And seed is more than that where you're looking to your investors as um, institutional investors that will extend your team and its resources, as well as really execute on the product market fit that you previously demonstrated. Uh, With regard to valuations, that definitely depends on what's already been built. So specifically what we look at when we are understanding the appropriate valuation of a company um, is the team's previous experience product viability, and lastly, the demonstrated product market fit. Those are the three core things we look at in order to map back to a valuation that makes sense. However, any one of those three levers could have more value on the intrinsic potential of the business to, to raise at a certain price point.
0: I mean, it sounds like basically what you're saying is, for valuation, it depends, right? Which is, I think, what a lot of investors do end up saying, and there are so many factors that go into it. um, I always tell founders that valuation feels more like an art than a science, necessarily, at this early stage. I don't know if you would agree with that.
1: I would absolutely agree with that. I think you can only do so many comps to other companies before you realize that your company is different from all of those companies, because by nature of restarting it, it's innovative. Right? And the environmental changes that affect valuations at the pre seed and seed stages. They're very transient. And I think what's important is to think about the reason why you are raising in the first place and how you want the company to look when you're going out to raise a subsequent round. Because at the end of the day, if a valuation is high enough where you're maintaining your equity and then it's low enough where it gives you room to increase that value at the next stage. That's really the rule of thumb I would go by.
0: Yeah. I think that's really helpful kind of perspective to have. I think the question I get all the time from founders and I think you've started to allude to this is how do you even know when you're ready to fundraise from VC? So maybe you have raised a pre-seed round and maybe it was 750,000 or it was a million or something like that. How do you know when it's now time to say, okay, I'm going to raise my next round
1: mm-hmm.
0: from, from truly from VC versus as you said, individuals and angels.
1: It's a great question. Uh- What I usually say to founders is that when there's an opportunity you want to take advantage of, and the only thing that will get you from point A to point B is capital, then you're ready to take in outside capital. Meaning to say, you've pulled all of the other levers you could, you see a clear potential for growth, and you really just need cash in order to achieve that growth. The icing on the cake is that investors, especially professional investors like VCs, are Effectively, an extension of your team, and that additional support does make a dent in the growth of the business. Um, And there are other reasons to raise outside capital at any given point in time. But the primary element I would look for in a business as a founder, as to a signal that it's time to raise capital, is you've done everything else, and now you're willing to give up a little bit of equity in your company in order to get the cash that will make the company grow significantly. Because in theory, the equity of of your own business as a founder um, is a lot more valuable than the cash you get in the short term. And it might not seem like that always, especially when when you're bootstrapped, but it's just an important thing to keep in mind. Um, It's very easy to get thrown off course these days and think that raising outside capital is a necessity for your business to be viable. Um, usually when you Google a company, the first thing you see is a TechCrunch article announcing a fundraise, for example. It can almost feel like raising outside financing is a benchmark of success. But in reality, I actually think a very small margin of companies actually fit that J-curve, the J-curve growth profile of a venture-backed business. And in fact, some of the happiest founders I know are the ones who actually have been able to exit without having to take in a ton of capital, because they grew in the pattern that made sense for their respective businesses, and then ultimately owned more of their businesses (laughs) uh, during a liquidity event anyway.
0: I I, I would love that. And I want to dive into that a little bit deeper. So you mentioned the J-curve growth pattern that venture capitalists are looking for. For the listening audience who might not Quite understand what that means. And I think people hear the words venture backable all the time, but they, you know, founders, a lot of founders don't understand what that means. Can you clarify a little bit about what it really means to be venture backable, what that J curve looks like? Sure. So I
1: would describe the J-Curve growth pattern as one where you're really taking your time um, with limited resources to build the foundations of a business by way of doing market research, really Anything you can to demonstrate product market fit in the early days, whether that is putting a minimum viable product out there inexpensively and getting quick real time feedback and iterating and iterating until finally you, as a founder, land on um, an execution strategy that you believe to be the most effective to grow the business and then ultimately spike that growth curve up with an infusion of capital and within five years are able to have um, a, a business that can exit for what I would refer to as a venture return, meaning
0: a 10X multiple in an ideal world, 10X plus in an ideal world. Got it. That's very helpful um, and very helpful kind of to frame, I think, founders' expectations of what VC funding should look like for them. So now, you know, now that we've kind of gone through kind of what this, the framework and the strategy of how you think about, when to raise and what your company should look like if you're going to raise from VCs. Let's talk about, you know, how the process works. So what do you expect to see when a founder is pitching you? What should they have prepared if they're having a meeting or a call with you? Obviously a pitch deck. What else are you looking for?
1: I'm always looking for a story. I come from a communications background, so I'm biased in that way, but I do really enjoy hearing from a founder Um, why, you know, why this founder is the right person to build this business, why this business is the solution for a huge market problem, um, why there's a market problem to begin with. Um, And really that all ties back to not a a rehearsed pitch story in any way, although those are fine if it's a starting point, but really more of a a trajectory that's told by the founder in conversation. So that comes through in in a pitch deck and visually it's, Super helpful. Also looking for any kind of metrics that are makeshift that can demonstrate, as I mentioned before, product market fit, but not necessarily in a way where there's real revenue numbers or anything like that, but more so data points that show the founder is being super intuitive about the market and is able to evolve based on those early proof points of, of where the product could go to deliver.
0: And I've asked this question for from other VCs and angels before. When you're when you're evaluating a startup and a company, kind of what's more important to you? I hear I hear a lot of back and forth about whether the founder and the founding team are more important versus the market opportunity and the market size. Um, I think those always come up as the top two. But different different investors have different perspectives on those. Where do you sort of fall along that spectrum?
1: So in any company that I'm looking at, I usually look at the three main elements of, as you mentioned, market management, and then also um, the selection of product that is used to solve the market problem. The team, I believed is the most valuable of those three at the earliest stage because that really is the only one that's completely given because the team is who's receiving the capital and the team can choose to pivot the business to address um, a different dynamic of market demand at any given point in time Um, And really, all you know in terms of what's been built to date is the experience of that team. That team has built their experience, and that's what they're applying. That said, there's also risks for a team, too. So it's certainly important to look at the market problem as a key piece of the puzzle. The market problem is an identifying factor of what the thesis of the business is and what the long-term vision of the business is. So if you're aligned with that long-term vision as, as an investor, then you're solving for at least one very important factor that mitigates risk. Because at the end of the day, it's all about mitigating risk in an entirely risky situation. And then I would deprioritize product at the pre-seed stage. Seed, it gets a little bit more prioritized. So to answer your question, first look at team, then
0: market, then product in order of priority. That I think... Um Like I said, I've got different answers to this question, um, and it's interesting to see how different investors really focus on the different elements. Um, So thank you for sharing that. So let's talk about how entrepreneurs should run a fundraising process. Um, At the seed stage, should they be looking for a lead first? Does a lead even matter? Uh, Typically, when founders today, I think have gone through a pre-seed round. It tends to be a party round with no weed. It tends to be a lot of angels. Maybe it's a convertible note or a safe, definitely not a price round. So kind of what are you seeing as best practice right now or what you think founders should be thinking about as they get to raising a seed?
1: We're, I agree with you. We're definitely seeing a lot of party rounds at the pre-seed and sometimes seed stage. However, I don't think that's a best practice. I do think a best practice is to have Um, one of the parties take accountability and um, know that that particular, whether it's a micro VC firm or angel investor, has the ability to not only follow on, but also um, lead the charge in helping to raise subsequent financing on behalf of the company. It's an ideal situation to be able to have that lead investor so early on. Sometimes you just want to raise the capital from individuals and even micro VCs who can be particularly helpful and relevant and then just get back to building the business. But that could put you in a risky situation because there is not one individual who's there to hold the bag um, if there is a an obstacle along the way, such as a need to raise a bridge round, for example.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think, you know, from my experience, I've been seeing seed financings kind of all over the map in terms of size, in terms of valuation, in terms of whether they're, you know, what structure they're using and whether there's a lead or not. So it sounds like you're seeing a lot of those same kinds of things yeah. um, that I'm seeing.
1: Are you, are you finding though that there are enough lead investors at the pre and seed stage? Because that's one thing where, I'm hoping we see a, a shift in that so that we don't have founders where we're committing capital and having to help them fill out a round where they're saying everybody else is just hanging around the hoop waiting for somebody to take the lead.
0: Yeah, I see that a lot. I think, I mean, I'm more investing at pre-seed, So at pre-seed, there's never a lead, I think, or very, very rarely. But I'm I'm hearing from founders that it is really hard to find a lead, at least in New York. I think it might be different on the West Coast, but you know, I don't really have a network there, so I'm not positive. But I do think there it's hard to find firms to lead at the early stage, particularly for this community of founders that is either sort of retail tech or marketplaces or mm-hmm. consumer brands, e-commerce. I think that those are, that's a sector where maybe there are even fewer leads than in other sectors.
1: Mm -hmm. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, there's a couple of companies that I think you and I both know well that have had this experience in the past, and it wasn't until they got to that sort of pre-series A type stage where they were able to have um, the more noticeable leads who are outspoken in the retail tech
0: space. I know exactly who you're talking about. (laughs) Um, Okay. So in the fundraising process, um, getting back to that for founders, you know, what are the hardest questions they should be ready to answer or certainly the hardest questions that you might ask?
1: It's funny because ideally a founder shouldn't really find a good question to be a hard question in the fundraising process, right? Because fundraising for well a founder who's out there talking about her own business her own passion point her own market expertise it shouldn't know all the answers of course because there are so many unknowns but should have such a level of of leadership and conviction in this certain category and that's why she's the one building this business in the first place So I would say, rather than hard questions, perhaps there are questions that are just really important and significant questions. And they may be difficult for the founder to articulate in any one given conversation if the person across the table, the investor across the table, um, isn't on the same wavelength. For example, one question that I always like to ask to founders at the seed stage is, um, what's your big vision for this business? What are you ultimately, not to use the trite word, but what are you disrupting? And where do you see this business in in five to 10 years? And I think the my favorite answers are the ones where I'm blown away by how confident the founder is in her ability to create a business that completely shifts the way I would have previously thought about a given market opportunity. It's a hard question because it's a big question, but it's not usually difficult for the founder to answer because that founder is so close to it. Right, right.
0: Yeah, I think I might add that maybe some of the, if you're not prepared for some of those questions, they can be very hard. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I
1: would definitely agree with that, which is why it's always super important to have metrics prepared ahead of time and and to know your numbers, but also be able to explain the numbers to somebody else who isn't as close to the day-to-day operations of the business. So when founders share everything from retention numbers and repeat purchase rates to profitability projections, I do find that to be very helpful from an investor perspective. And also primarily because they're answering the hard question, which is how do you make the most of your acquisition costs? And that's probably a very difficult question for for many early stage companies because there are so many unknowns.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So pivoting a little bit from hardest questions to sort of biggest mistakes, you know, it is really hard to raise around. I guess, what are some of the mistakes that you see entrepreneurs making that this listening audience could benefit from knowing not to do? Sure. So
1: I think there's an opportunity around the market slide that's in a pitch deck to stand out from the rest, because one major pitfall I've seen in pitch decks is having one slide that just says, our market is a bajillion dollars. And I'm sure there is validity to all of those metrics um, in every one of those slides, but it's also a missed opportunity to really demonstrate what the market actually is and how that can be attainable. So instead of that slide in a pitch deck where there's one big number with a minimal explanation around it, I would instead suggest that slide be one where there is a bottom up analysis of a market opportunity to truly show what the willingness to pay is of the potential customer and subsequently how to target that customer in another slide that's one thing i've seen that's really tactical and it can be um you can be an opportunity rather than a pitfall
0: i love that and i i that brings so true to me as well. I really don't like those market slides that just have one big number. I love the bottom up approach. Um, I tell founders this all the time, so I hope all the founders listening to this really take this to heart because this is really good advice from Megan. Mm-hmm. So, what structures are you seeing more of now, particularly the seed round? Are you seeing still safes and notes? Are you seeing more price rounds? Kind of what's your advice at a seed round in terms of? best practice for structure that you would use?
1: We are still seeing a lot of convertible notes and a lot of safe notes. Um, more so the new YC post money safe note as opposed to pre money, just so people really know what they're investing in. Investors really know what they're investing in as opposed to um, the the unknown of how much a company can be worth once they take in a lot of capital. Um, that said, I have not yet come to a thesis around what that means for with the current economic cli- uh, climate. One person who I follow very closely with regards to his thoughts around the space is Ed Zimmerman, who heads up the tech practice at Lowenstein-Sandler. He is very clear in his thoughts around convertible nodes and safes, particularly in this type of economic climate. I would recommend following along with his thoughts there. <laughs> And looking to uh, the lawyers in your personal professional networks as a founder to keep tabs on how to manage your manage up to your investors now and in subsequent rounds. So to answer your question, yes, we're continuing to see safes and convertible notes, but I'm not quite sure how that will evolve in the next 90 days, given the current economic climate.
0: Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you um, shouted out Ed Zimmerman, and we'll put a link um, to his tweets and articles in the show notes for this episode because I also follow him very closely, um, and I think he has really strong thoughts and really lays out very clearly the differences between these structures. And I think all the all founders who are thinking about what structure they should use really should should be knowledgeable before they choose, and at least you know choose one with all full knowledge of what the upsides and downsides of each are. Um, And I think uh, sometimes founders want to use kind of the easiest possible thing for now, but there are also longer term implications. Definitely.
1: And I think, um, I actually think I'm stealing this analogy from Ed, but if you think of it this way, yes, a convertible note or a safe is a way to Taking capital as seamlessly as possible in order to continue building your business and taking advantage of traction that you could possibly have ahead of you. However, it's almost like building a house on a shady foundation. And you, as a as a founder of a venture back business, you want to build a really big house. So, <laughs> if you're building it on top of the foundation of terms that um, aren't as definitive, there are certainly risks there.
0: For sure. For sure. And that's a great segue into my next question for you, which is, you know, given that we now have sort of pre-seed rounds and seed rounds and accelerator rounds, and maybe there was some crowdfunding and maybe there was a bridge note, by the time founders get to a series A, there are significant cap table and dilution implications that might not be obvious at the time. Is there anything that founders should really be doing at the earliest stages, like even at pre-seed or friends and family or at the accelerator to protect themselves kind of early on from this whole issue of building a bad foundation and then you can't build a big house.
1: Yes. Um, I would recommend any founder to stay as close to the NBCA.org market standard term sheet as possible. It's market standard for a reason. It works and it keeps everyone at the early stage aligned and keeps side letters and any extra cute variables here and there um, to, to a minimum. And um, that way just keeps everybody focused on building the same pie bigger as opposed
0: to um, raising questions later on. I think that's great advice. I might add to that, that if you don't know what some of these implications and things are, um, that you should maybe speak to your attorney and make sure that there isn't something weird in a term sheet that you've received from someone. So what's the one most critical piece of advice you would give founders as they go out to raise their pre-seed or seed, you know, any kind of early stage fundraising round?
1: I would say a few things. Um, First of all, Make sure you're 101% certain that you do need outside capital. And going back to what we were saying before, your equity is extremely valuable. <laughs> so make sure that you have pulled all the levers at your disposal to build the business to where it could be um, before taking an outside capital to get from point A to point B. The second point I would say to founders is that it is a two-way street and it's really important to keep that in mind when you're fundraising. Every person on your cap table is a long-term partner in your business and you want to make sure that you want them involved and that you're incredibly aligned. So while the word pitch is used very often, the pitch is a two-way street and you want to make sure that the investors who you're speaking to can bring something else to the table in addition to capital because capital is most certainly a commodity right now and it might not seem like it at times but there is plenty of it out there and you want to make sure that you're taking in capital from people who can be additive in addition to that straight cash
0: I love that piece of advice the pitch is a two-way street I think I'm going to I'm going to steal that from you and use it all the time now so I apologize in advance for that. <laughs> completely plagiarizing you, but um, that makes so much sense. I mean, it is a two-way street. You know, you, while investors are diligencing you as a founder, you should also be diligencing them. It's a long-term relationship, right? And it should be 100% aligned for sure. Okay. So I have one last question. So we're recording this as most of New York is shut down so that we flatten the curve of coronavirus. You know, we're doing this remotely um, through Zoom. Let's hope it records properly and it does not its all wonky. If it is, I are, I'm apologizing to the listener audience already for that. But what do you think massive events like this, like a pandemic and shutdowns, have on founders' ability to raise around right now? And, you know, for reference to those listening... We're at March 18th uh, today. So, you know, what kind of, what what do you think that is going to happen? Can founders raise money right now? What's your advice? It is
1: certainly an unprecedented, crazy time right now. I would say to founders, um, do not be discouraged. The way venture capital funds are structured are such that have raised the capital, from their LPs already, and they are actively making those investments. So we're we're long-term investors. We're not looking to to generate a return within a 90-day period. Um, We're not investing in the stock market. This is a long-term investment and market, market anomalies happen. That said, that's venture capitalists. Where I think we will unfortunately see capital drying up in the near future is the non-professional investors. So angel investors, individuals, perhaps family offices might be diversifying into other asset classes where they can have more short-term liquidity. I I don't know what will happen with corporate VCs because each corporate VC um, is funded in different ways, but there will be some interesting turns there to keep an eye out for. But the bottom line is to founders is to just make sure that you are keeping a very close eye on every dollar that goes out the door and every penny that is spent. So a few rules of thumb that we're sharing with our founders are a lot of the other opportunities out there to fundraise. Um, If cash does seem to be dwindling pretty quickly. There are a number of debt financing vehicles in the retail space that we like to work with and complement to our equity financing model. There are other types of collaborations and platforms that retail startups can use in order to maximize their reach during this time. So that's a long-winded way of answering a question that I don't think anybody knows the answer to right now.
0: Yeah, I think there's so much uncertainty, and I think we might know more in a few weeks. Um, But certainly, that that's all great advice. And you know, I think it's hard not to get discouraged. But there's definitely things, at least small things, um, better opportunities on the margins that founders shouldn't shouldn't, uh, discount. So, um, thank you for sharing that perspective. And Megan, thank you so much for sharing your advice and tips on the Mm -hmm. podcast. Um, I really appreciate your time today and hope that you continue to stay safe and healthy.
1: Thank you so much, Sapna. And to all the founders out there who might feel a little discouraged in this current economic climate or with it all, um, Trisha Black, the founder of Amplify Her, and I are here to chat with you anytime. And we look forward to meeting all of you. And Sapna, stay, stay well. Thank you so much. And
0: thank you for listening to the RetailX podcast. We'll have another episode out shortly. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to attend a Retail X Series event in person, check out www.retailxseries.com for upcoming events in New York. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Retail X Series. You can also learn more about me, find fundraising resources, or submit a pitch deck at www.redgiraffeadvisors.com. Thanks and catch you next time.